The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. <clears throat> uh, today is uh, Tuesday the 9th of April 2019 and um, the show tonight um, is entitled uh, Encouraging Words in Times of Crisis. Um, over the weekend I was um, rereading a book I have about suicide and um, there was at one point a list of attitudes uh, commonly found in people who are suicidal. Um, these include such things as seeing that, that oneself as being incurable or in some fundamental way um, stuck or incomplete or such, we tell ourselves such things as, I'm a loser. And along with this, there can be seeing life as, as meaningless. And a very big part of, of uh, views or the, the thoughts of somebody who's suicidal is seeing the future as not being any better than what's going on around at the moment. There was no prospect of improvement. And then all of this becomes so painful and so intense that, that death seems to be preferable to going on living. And I guess if you were to sum this up into, into one word, it would be hopelessness. I think it's fair to say that everyone or almost everyone has feelings like this sometimes. And they're part, they're really part of the human condition, certainly the unawakened human condition. But in the suicidal person, person they become overwhelming. And um, this, this desire to die comes up. This is something that's recognized as part of, of, of being human in Buddhism talk in, in Buddhism about different kinds of thirsts that people can have. Tanha, thirst or craving. And one of them that's listed, and the only three, is the thirst for non-existence. Um, so the three kinds of, of Tanha, this one, the thirst for non-existence, Tanha Vibhava. Um, the other two, um, uh, tanha Kama and Tanha Bhava. Um, tanha Kama is the uh, uh, the thirst uh, for sensory stimulation, pre pleasant sensory experiences, and this includes our five ordinary senses and and the sixth sense being our thought our thought processes. And then Tanha Bhava means the the thirst for existence or becoming. And we could include in this the, the thirst for growth or expansion, acquisition. So it's all the, all the, say, the positive side of the, of, the, of the coin. And then the tanha vibhava is the thirst for non-existence, annihilation, destruction. destruction. So the, the, the sort of negative desires that we have. And this tanha is is understood to be um, 
an immediate cause of our suffering. And all these, these cravings, these thirsts, come up out of our, our false notion that we are a separate self. This misunderstanding we have, this basic misunderstanding, that we're a separate self that, that is lacking things or needs certain conditions um, that's vulnerable. a little bit more about this from, from what the Buddha taught. So the term thirst includes not only the desire for an attachment to sense pleasures such as wealth and power, but also the desire for and the attachment to ideas and ideals, views, opinions, theories, conceptions and beliefs. According to the Buddha's analysis, all the troubles and strife in the world come from, from little personal quarrels in families to great wars between nations and countries. Um, they arise out of this selfish thirst. From this point of view, all economic, political and social problems are rooted in this, in this thirst. Great statesmen who try to settle international disputes and talk of war and peace only in economic and political terms touch the superficialities and never go deep into the real root of the problem. As the Buddhists told Ratapala, the world lacks and hankers and is enslaved to thirst. So, so this is something very, very fundamental in us. And uh, we don't talk much about the, these darkest thoughts, these thoughts of non-existence. Though we might say quite a lot about the, the other side of the coin, or our, uh, our desire for existence, which are, are much more acceptable, you could say, in, in, uh, in our culture. But it's really important um, that we, we acknowledge these dark thoughts and... and um, learn how to who, to work with them skillfully and really we should say our darkest thoughts and feelings because these two go together the thoughts um, shape the feelings and the and the feelings shape the thoughts and these things often come come up in the extremity of a crisis whether it's um, something uh, in our relationships or perhaps a health crisis could be in our organization that we're, we're working with um, so personal things like this but also um, collective crises and we've been talking in recent weeks exploring the climate emergency this is this is one where it's very easy for it to give rise to sense of hopelessness um, And we can lose lose sight of how crises are, are opportunities for transformation, 
and I'm going to read some passages from a book called The Transformative Power of Crisis by Robert M. Alter with Jane Alter. So really what we're going to be talking about in a sense is is what are the what are the how can we find something hopeful in the midst of what can appear to be fairly hopeless crises um, in some ways this 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 concept of of hope doesn't really figure much in Zen because Zen so emphasizes the present and hope usually is understood as as being something like expectation of of things turning out well in the future but recently I came across a quotation which I wrote down I couldn't find it for this talk but I've got the gist of it and it, it's more it's more in tune with the Zen understanding of what hope might um, mean for us as practitioners and it went something like this hope is not the expectation of a better future but the faith that the course we are taking right now is worthwhile even if we do not succeed in reaching our goal I think this this is very much something that that we can we can experience in in practice um, it talks sometimes about the need for great faith and great determination in in Zen, along with with great doubt or perplexity or questioning. And this this ex expression here, um, faith that the course we are taking right now is worthwhile, even if we do not succeed in reaching our goal, is is um, it has it, it captures this what we mean when we say great faith and great determination and it has to do with where we are right now not some kind of um, imagined future which is just that it's it's something we imagine it's not something we experience directly so so I hope in, this, in the rest of this talk, in the passages we're going to look at, we can explore this hope in this sense. from this book on the transformative power of crisis. First a passage that talks a little bit about crisis. And it starts off with two quotes. Crisis is an attempt of nature, of the natural cosmic lawfulness of the universe to effect change. It tears down and breaks up, which is momentarily painful, but transformation is unthinkable without it. And that's somebody called um, Eva Pierakos. And then Herman Hesse said, as soon as suffering becomes acute enough, one goes forward. 
this is this is a, is a very common fact of, of of our human nature that we don't really move until we're suffering a lot. This is why um, physical pain in, in our Zazen can sometimes be very helpful because we, we get to the point where we're desperate enough to really see what it's like when we become one with the pain, to really make an effort in that direction. It's what the writer says about, about crisis. For a time we're allowed to get away with our wounded behavior, and we could say here, our unconscious behavior. We either experience minor consequences from it or we ignore the serious consequences. The familiarity of our behavior is comforting in its own way. We feel right at home in our patterns, juggling two lovers, manipulating others in order to get what we want, overworking, overeating, and we could add in here, overheating the planet. Then a time comes when it becomes hard or impossible to continue in that behavior. That time is usually signaled by a big mess we make in our lives, a chaotic disaster, a crisis. But the crisis is really God's way of saying it's time to move on from our unskillful patterns. The consequence of our, of our behavior becomes so serious that we finally feel impelled to change. Now the universe is saying to you, look pal, you can continue to do things the old way if you want, but if you do, you're going to get pay the price. Visualize in your mind the two words crisis and crossing. They look a bit alike and are alike because a crisis is really a crossing from an old way of being to a new way of being. To make crossing, one needs a bridge. The crisis is the bridge you walk across to get over to the new way of operating. It might be a health crisis, or a relationship crisis, or a financial, moral, or spiritual crisis. If seen clearly and used correctly, these crises are all bridges, all crossings to the new way. Once you've crossed over, you don't need crises anymore, so you will stop creating them in your life. The whole the theme of this book is um, really how everything can can change if we see whatever arises as an opportunity to um, learn and specifically to learn to love. Um, Ajahn Sumedho said this about metta or loving kindness. Metta is kindness with awareness. It doesn't mean we resign ourselves to mediocrity or tyranny. It means we don't get caught in the old patterns of fear, depression, jealousy or resentment. When we stop dwelling in aversion for ourselves and others, it is easier to bear the vicissitudes of life. 
When we stop dwelling in aversion for ourselves and others, it is easier to bear the vicissitudes of life. So what we're really talking about is, is kindness with awareness. And this is a path that is, is um, is is meaningful and valuable. Another section is headed up the pot of self-loathing. And um, it starts off with a quote from um, the Gospel of Thomas. If you bring forth what is inside you, what you bring forth will save you. If you don't bring forth what is inside you, what you don't bring forth will destroy you. And then the writer tells the story of of one of his patients. He's a he's a therapist, so he, he comes with a for, with a um, from a psychological but also spiritual uh, standpoint. Tells the story of one of his patients who came into his office and sat slumped, his voice lifeless, his glazed eyes staring at his shoes. I asked him if he would like to go deeper into his feelings. He shrugged a half-hearted assent. Dimming the lights, I invited him to talk about his week. After a short silence, he did. I blew it with two customers, he said. I always blow it. I've blown everything my whole life. My whole life adds up to shit. I'm sorry I ended up this way. I don't make enough money so my wife has to work so hard and she looks so tired sometimes. I shouldn't be sad and depressed so much. I spread my sand sadness like poison over everybody. I feel like I'm poison. I feel disgusting. I feel sick and old and ugly. I'm a lousy everything. I'm a lousy salesman and a lousy father and a lousy husband. It all, it all it seems all I do is disappoint people. I've let everybody down. He kept talking. The words seemed to have a life of their own, as if once begun, they couldn't stop coming out from the place he had opened up inside. After a while, he began to cry. He cried for a long time. When he was done, he sat in silence for 10 minutes, his eyes closed. The muscles of his face relaxed and smooth. Then he opened his eyes and looked up at me. What was that? He said. What was what? Those words I said. That was the pot of self-loathing loathing, tipping over inside you. And then he continues, the pot of self-loathing is that place inside that says I'm horrible, I'm worthless, I'm unlovable, I'm repulsive, I'm alone, I deserve nothing and I hate myself. It is the place where our deepest depression lives and despair and utter isolation and suicidal feelings. 
It is the place where we feel totally alone in the universe and broken and unfixable. It goes on to say that, that um, as we work on ourselves, sooner or later we get, we get to see this, this pot of self-loathing. And what he suggests is that what is most important is the, that we, we bear witness to it when, it when it spills through our consciousness. He says, many never come to know about it because it's both gilded with compensatory feelings like superiority, arrogance, anger and judgment, and it's camouflaged pretty well by worldly goodies like youth and health and success and pleasure. But woe to the person whose pot of self-loathing is struck by an outside event, like a rejection or a failure, or a loss or a disease, causing its camouflage to disappear or its gilding to get scratched, exposing the darkest imaginable feelings inside. At this point, the pot reels and tips and spills over into consciousness. said one of the ways in which Zazen can really help because it's likely that we will um, will encounter this um, pot of self-loathing sooner or later in our Zazen and uh, to see it there is so helpful because then we can we can know it and recognize it he goes on to say that he thinks that we all have this pot in us to some degree and for some of us it's more more powerful and less powerful others probably to do with the sort of uh, parenting we got there's very small children babies but what's important is to stay present with it he says, feel it spill into your consciousness, speak its words and cry its tears. Let all that sewage spill out and then you will feel lighter, cleansed and more peaceful. I think this is true if we allow ourselves to really experience it and go all the way, as this example as James did, all the way to tears. Because when we go that far with it, then we go to go prior to the words. Um, we we hit that that point of vulnerability, what um, uh, Pema Chodron calls the soft spot, and it'll still go on being there even if we if we do experience this, but um, it can be emptied out, and um, he suggests that that this happens through our learning to love ourselves really unconditionally, to, to really have, we would say in Buddhist terms, to have metta for ourselves. And that means accepting uh, ourselves as we are, accepting whatever arises in our minds um, and welcoming it all, all of it. There's a... Um, great uh, Rumi poem that some of you may have already heard uh, it's called the guest house this being human is a guest house every morning a new arrival 
a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Each has been sent as a guide from the beyond. He finishes by saying, how can you love yourself unconditionally when you have a pot of self-loathing inside? Start by loving yourself for having it and then go from there. So developing this, this um, unconditional acceptance of ourselves as we are. One of the things that can really, um, really support us in this, in this uh, work is discipline. And the next, the next passage I want to read from is called The Oaks of the Forest in Praise of Discipline. And it uh, starts with a quote from Robert Frost, freedom is feeling good in harness. Discipline is a word that many people resist. Often it brings to our mind's eye images of overly strict teachers or parents who believed there were, no, there were two ways to do things, their way and the wrong way. No wonder so many of us think of discipline as a cruel restriction, a clipping of our wings. But discipline does not mean a Spartan denial of things we enjoy in life. It means we enjoy them in moderation. We don't say an absolute no to our bodies, our senses and our pleasures. We say to a point. The fun of discipline is finding that point goes on to describe how he loves ice cream um, but if he has more than a certain amount it makes him sick but he's learnt to um, just eat to that point that is okay and not and not beyond it and he says discipline then is the practice of moderation it doesn't forbid us from doing something but it actually allows us to do it it doesn't take away our freedom, it grants us freedom. Discipline is not being controlled, it is being in control. It's taking control and power back from our senses, our cravings, our addictions and our wandering minds. No longer are we at the mercy of these forces because we're in charge now. The spiritual disciplines I practice in my daily life, like reading or meditation, don't make me feel like I'm being controlled, constrained, restrained or denied anything. They make me feel I'm being supported, buoyed up and along, 
transported from one peaceful place to another. By making an, the effort to be disciplined in my life, I live my life more effortlessly, transferring my load to the disciplined practices. Like in the Greyhound ads, leave the driving to us. I just want to talk about um, how um, bringing some structure and elegance in into our lives, um, routines that work for us and um, things we do every day, then we can develop a kind of calm beauty. The calm beauty of an ordered life, as somebody called it. So this isn't about somehow disciplining our, our thoughts and feelings, but of creating a structure, a container, in which all kinds of unruly thoughts and feelings can be um, met. He says, etymologically, the word discipline is related to the word disciple. And both words are related to the Latin word docere, meaning to teach. In other words, if you are here on this earth to be taught, if you conceive of yourself as a student studying the teachings of truth and wisdom, you practice discipline. In this sense, our disciplined daily practices are the tuition we voluntarily, even joyfully, pay for receiving the teachings. Tuition fees, in other words. Explaining why there is discipline or rule in religious life, Saint Therese of Lisieux, who was a cloistered nun from the age of 15 to her death at 24, said, Consider the oaks of the countryside, how crooked they are. They thrust their branches to right and left. Nothing checks them, so they never reach a great height. On the other hand, consider the oaks of the forest, which are hemmed in on all sides. They see light only up above, so their trunk is free of all those shapeless branches which Robert of the sap needed to lift it aloft. It sees only heaven, so all its strength is turned in that direction, and soon it attains a prodigious height. In the religious life, the soul is like the young oak, hemmed in on all sides by its rule. So they grow, in other words, they grow straight. If, if, if hemmed in on all sides. And of course the straight, the straight tears tree is the one that um, is more useful in a sense. He says, on any journey you take, you take what you need in order to get where you want to go. On the journey of consciousness, which is a journey to happiness, we take discipline. Discipline will not only bring us to happiness, it is a sweet support that is in itself happiness. Now the last section, that I want to look at now um, is called 
four ways of going. And again, it starts with a story. This one's about um, a woman called Caroline. She was 59 and quite wealthy. And she was on her way to El Salvador um, to spend um, four months living in a village, helping villagers with a building project. It would be her third trip there, but she was troubled. She says, I think if I let myself, I could stay there the rest of my life. And I know I could just give them all of my money. The poverty there is unbelievable. It breaks your heart. I feel I could give and give, and I'd hardly make a dent at all. And I so want to make a difference for those people, for this world. But there is so much to do. Then I get overwhelmed by it all and depressed, and I end up immobilized, just sitting in my house all day, staring out the window at the woods. How can I find peace with all the suffering in the world? And again, we've been talking about this, and it's something that I think comes up for people um, often when looking at, at all the problems there are in the world, all the suffering. And Robert Alter offers um, four different ways of responding to the world's suffering, all its crises, its difficulties. And um, he says they, they seem, these four responses seem to contradict each other, but if you can somehow hold them together in your mind, they might bring you some peace. So I just want to look at these, these four ways of responding. The first one is the way of the Bodhisattva. And he, gives, he quotes the first of our four noble, our four um, vows. Um, All beings without wonder, I vow to number, I vow to liberate. A slightly different translation he uses. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. He says, embodying this particular point of view, we should all devote everything we have in our lives, our time, energy, talents, and resources to alleviating the suffering in the world. We should all be bodhisattvas of compassion, enlightened beings who take on the responsibility of ending the suffering. We should all just finally get it that we're all in this together, and not one of us can be personally and individually happy as long as there are, is a single one of us who isn't. It doesn't matter if it's the suffering of the poor person in El Salvador, or a homeless person in Boston, or an abused child in a loveless home, or an animal being cruelly treated. Suffering is suffering, and all of it is our suffering. When we understand that, then our hearts expand with infinite compassion, and we can all get our personal act together in order to go out there and put an end to it. But this is just one of four points of view that he offers. And it's important to recognize these other three as well as the Bodhisattva 
path that we too tend to emphasize in Zen. He calls the second one a change of heart. And he quotes this now famous, if not overused, quote from Gandhi. You must be the change you wish to see in the world. So again, speaking this with this voice, he says, the best thing you can do for the world and the only way to truly change the world is to change yourself. Everything that's wrong out there is wrong in here. Because the world is a hologram of myself, I must heal myself, purifying myself of everything that is not love. This sad world of ours, full of human beings trying so hard to love while so full of hurt and fear, needs millions of people whose hearts have become love and who bring that love wherever they go. I must work on myself, therefore, until my heart is pure. That's my responsibility to the world. Whenever I am doing anything that purifies my heart, sitting alone in a room, meditating or praying, reading the words of the sages, walking in the woods in the tranquility of nature, eating and exercising to keep my health, coming into therapy to heal my wounds, I am doing something that is helpful for the world. So doing the inner work. Here's another, a third point of view. This one he calls the arm in the bucket. And starts with a quote from, a, from Jewish tradition. God wants the fire on the altar to burn with a small flame. This universe of space and time infinite and eternal in all directions and dimensions, is beyond anything you can conceive of, and you and your efforts to improve it don't make an iota of difference in it. Everything you do or might do is irrelevant. There is a level of reality on which we are totally insignificant, and only when we get to the truth of our own insignificance will, be, will we understand that trying to do anything important in the world always ends up being some form of hubris. Someone once said that if you want to know how important you are in the world, you should put your arm in a bucket of water and then take it out. And the impression left by your arm in the water after you take it out is how important you are in the world. The key point in here is, is, is the, the mistakenness of thinking in terms of importance, of our own importance and the importance or not of our, of our work, our acts. And then a final point of view. The quote he gives us from one of the Upanishads, that is perfect. This is perfect. From the perfect springs the perfect. If the perfect is taken from the perfect, only the perfect remains. 
The world does not need improvement. It is only your limited understanding that makes you think that it needs improvement. Everything in the world is perfect, afloat, governed and embraced by the love and law of God. We could say the, 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 the law of the of blessings of the Buddhas and the law of cause and effect. And when your understanding improves, improves and your vision clears, you will know that. You will know that suffering is only an outer appearance and that in reality everything is already perfect. How to hold all these, all these four um, different angles on things together. The great vow of the Bodhisattva, um, which can really help us to persist when we feel feel stuck and keep keep giving rise to um, metta and karuna. Then the the work we do on on our own um, hearts. The effort we make to to let go of all our self preoccupations, a true enemy. Then, then to be sure that we stay humble. This is related to to our self preoccupation. Letting go of us of of all kinds of grandiosity, staying staying close to the ground, so that we don't don't crash, and finally remembering that. Everything, as it is, is just as it should be. Whole, complete, lacking nothing. And that perfection includes me and my life just, just as I am right now. It says in one of the verses to the koans, before taking a single step, I've already arrived. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number 
liberate endless blind passions, I bow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I bow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I bow to attain all beings without number, I bow to liberate endless blind passions, I bow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I bow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.